Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. We're now actually going to begin this series looking at verses 1 to 7 of the first chapter. Let me read that again for you. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he named Belteshazzar, Hananiah he named Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So this is the passage we want to delve into this morning. Chapter 1 is a beautiful introduction to the book as a whole because it presents the main characters that are in this book. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's in chapters 1 to 4. After that, he's not mentioned. But he's a major player. And of course, Daniel and his three friends. But it contains, the first chapter contains the great underlying theme to the whole book. That is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the King of kings. He's the ultimate and sovereign ruler over all. There's nothing, there's no one that is out of his control no matter how things may appear. So this is reinforced to us in chapter 1. So notice in verses 1 and 2 that God gives King Jehoiakim, specifically says that, he gave King Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now you'll notice how the chapter opens. This is a defining point in history. Did you catch it? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, thus and such happens. This is one of seven chapters in the book that has this historical time.
time marker that begins with a specific time in history. That tells me that the author of this book was present. He was on the scene. He's writing as a contemporary. This is one of the arguments you can make for Daniel actually being the author of this book in the 6th century. Now, notice what is said to us that Jehoiakim, let's talk about him for a minute. He's the son of Josiah, previous king of Judah, but he was a bad king. He's a wicked man. The reason why we know that is from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was told to write his messages from the Lord on a scroll. This is Jeremiah 36. And Jeremiah had a scribe by the name of Baruch who was to do that. And Baruch wrote all the messages from Yahweh on a scroll. The scroll eventually went to King Jehoiakim. And you know what he did with it? He burned it. He didn't believe the pronouncements of judgment from Jeremiah the prophet. So his attitude toward the word of God is indicative of what kind of a king he was. He was a wicked man. Now, you'll notice that in the text here, it says that in the third year of King Jehoiakim, he was taken by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in Jeremiah's prophecy, I'm going to bring this out just to clarify one thing, because somebody who delves into this might see, hey, there's a contradiction with Jeremiah 25, verse 1, that says it's in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Now, can it be the third year according to Daniel and the fourth year according to Jeremiah? It is resolved very simply. The way time was measured of the reign of a king by the Babylonians was different from the way the Jews measured the reign of a king. Let me explain. It's very simple. Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne in August, and that was the first year of his reign, actually, the first year when this happened. He had just come to the throne. So the months until the beginning of the new year, the Babylonians did not count that. That would have been three years only to the Babylonians for Jehoiakim. But to the Jews, they counted those months that were left in the year, and they counted that as the first year. So the four months left in that year would have made year number one, and then they started to count the others. So that is the way this is resolved. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. He had just recently come to the throne from his father, who previously was the king, and his name was Nabopolassar. This is all stuff that you can look up and find. It's easily accessed. So I'm not presenting any esoteric knowledge here of history or anything. This is all readily available as secular history. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most important kings in the ancient world. 
He's mentioned in the Old Testament 90 times. He had a very long reign. In fact, one of the longest reigns of 42 years. He came to the throne when he was 25. And that was in the year 605. Daniel 1-4 to relates the events in Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So he is the primary king of the first four chapters of Daniel. But here's an interesting thing about Nebuchadnezzar. He was known as a great builder, just like Herod the Great. And he wanted to make Babylon the greatest city in the world. So he did a lot to build up the city, and it was a great city. Apparently it had walls that were 300 feet high and were so thick you could ride chariots across the top of the walls of Babylon. He fired the bricks in a kiln, making them very hard, where previously the builders of cities used sun-dried mud bricks. So they're much fragiler than what Nebuchadnezzar used. So just a few interesting things about him. Now it says that he besieged Jerusalem. There is a problem here if you take it literally to mean that he surrounded the city in 605. That actually didn't occur until 587 and 586, 18 years later, where he actually surrounded Jerusalem, looted the temple, and all of that. So, some of the commentators say another way to translate the word besieged is the idea that he opposed Jerusalem, he initiated conflict, he treated them as an enemy. So, there's another way to look at this and to understand it, so that the dates do not conflict with other historical books of the Old Testament. But be that as it may, I I like what Robert Dick Wilson, the famous... Old Testament scholar from many years ago, he said, no man knows enough to assail the truthfulness of the Old Testament. So these supposed contradictions and things that men come up with, they can all be resolved with deeper study and understanding. Now notice that Daniel writes that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That expression is going to be used three times in chapter 1. It's here in verse 2, it's in verse 9, and then again in verse 17. The Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. This is God's sovereign control, His rule over the kingdoms of this world, executing His will. The word for God here is the word Adonai. It's not Yahweh. Adonai gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, one of God's names used several hundred times in the Old Testament. It's only used with respect to him. It's in the plural, but it's the idea that God is the owner, the master. It speaks of the fact that he possesses us, he owns us, and we are at his command, at his disposal. So this is the word that Daniel selects to speak of God giving Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So he takes power away from the king of Judah. He puts it in 
Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And notice what happens. Nebuchadnezzar also takes some of the vessels that were in the temple. Now again, he didn't loot the temple where he stole all of that, the gold and the silver, until 18 years later when the city of Jerusalem is besieged. So it's believed that what ha- what is being spoken of here is um, Jehoiakim becomes the vassal of Nebuchadnezzar when he's conquered, and he, this is a gift, a tribute that he pays from the gold in the temple, the vessels of the temple. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar do with these vessels? Notice he took them, and he took them to the land of Shinar. Does that ring a bell from the early chapters of Genesis? The land of Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 10 and 11. It's where Nimrod began his his kingdom in the land of Shinar and where the, the Tower of Babel was constructed. Babel is the ancient name for Babylon. It's actually the same in the original language. This is where idolatry began. That structure that they built, whose top was to reach into the heavens, was a form of idolatry and rebellion against God, who told the, told the people to scatter, not to congregate together. But they rebelled against Him. So the land of Shinar is connected with Babylon. It's connected with Nimrod's kingdom. It's connected with idolatry, the origin of idolatry, actually. The origin of all false religion began in the land of Shinar. Somebody said that this is the land of the seed of the serpent. So he he took the vessels to the land of Shinar and to the temple of his God. Now, the Babylonians had many gods. The god probably that's being referenced here is Marduk. He's the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon of deities. Marduk had over 50 names, titles, that fitted him for all the different roles and the functions that he would exercise as the king over the empire of the gods in their religious beliefs. Now, I want to do just a brief sidebar here on the theology of the Babylonian mythology, which is the same as the Egyptians. So the Babylonians the Egyptians had very parallel ideas of ancient mythology with respect to their religious beliefs. It's going to be very surprising to you. This information was gleaned from John Walton's book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. I want to describe for you what their belief was about the deities. First of all, that the gods had origins. Now, just as I go through this, just think about what is taught to us about the true God, about Yahweh. So the Babylonian deities, there were a pantheon, meaning there were many of them. They all had a beginning. They all had an origin. They were created, the first 
group of gods were created. Marduk was created. Now, who created them? I'm not sure how that happened. I can't give you that. I don't know enough about it to be able to explain that. The gods had a beginning, and they were created as cosmic deities, which means that they had the the function of what goes on in the cosmos. The storm, the wind, the sun, all of that. So the deities represent different aspects of the cosmos. The, the original, the first group of deities, they embodied the elements of the, of the cosmos. The later deities... You mean they were early and later? Yes. They're in family relationships, and they were born to the previous deities. So we're going to talk, I'm going to mention the son of Marduk in a little bit. So they had sons. So they're in family relationships. They're born to the previous generation of gods. All of them have bad and good qualities. None are perfect. They're like people, only without the same limitations. This is amazing. Understanding. This is Babylonian mythology of the gods. They were based in particular areas where the temple was. And what that means is, this was their domain. This was their territory. In other words, they, did, they weren't a, a God who covered everything. They were limited to where the temple was. This is where they lived. They relied on their worshipers to bring them food. And so on. And then finally, I want to mention that they made mistakes. They made misjudgments. These gods could be surprised. They experienced uncertainty and confusion. This is all I'm using the language of John Walton here in his book. If you want the name of that book again, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. It's a great volume. So as I was thinking through this, I just thought again of what Paul says in the first chapter of Romans that we covered a couple years ago. Paul says of the decline of man religiously that he exchanged the glory of God for an image made like to corruptible man and four-footed animals and even creeping things, meaning insects and whatnot. Man even thought of God in that way. So here it is in Babylon. They turned the God into a man, many man, many men and women. Now, in verses 3 to 5, Nebuchadnezzar takes captives into his service. Nebuchadnezzar takes captives into his service. Notice verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, and then it describes several things about them. So apparently these are people that are already 
in Babylon. They're the first group that had been deported from Judah when Nebuchadnezzar obtained the submission of the king. He was put in his power. And he took captives back to Babylon. And from those captives, Nebuchadnezzar gives the order to Ashpenaz to look out among them. There must have been several hundred or thousand to pick from. And he goes through and he tells them what he's looking for. Look at this. First of all, he wants them to come from the, from the royal line. Now, it's interesting that Hezekiah was told by the prophet Isaiah. This is in Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 7. Isaiah tells Hezekiah that some of his own children who he fathered will be taken to Babylon and will be made eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. So there's a heads up to King Hezekiah of what was to come later on. Well, this is now all the fulfillment of that. So he has members of the royal family. Now we might, like I said last time, it may indicate that Daniel belonged to the royal family. That is, that he was somehow in the line of David somewhere. We don't know for sure. But he was at least from the tribe of Judah, which was the royal tribe. And from the nobility. So that gives you some idea. So he he really wants the best here is what it's telling us. And then we have further, he's looking at the outward appearance. First of all, their age, he wants youths. Not children. This doesn't mean children. This is talking about teenagers. Perhaps 14 to 18 years of age, somewhere in this area, so that they have many years ahead of them to serve the king. And of these youths, he wants them without blemish. That is like a perfect physical form. You can read into that whatever you like. But he's he's looking clearly at the outward appearance. And then this is something entirely different of good appearance. He wants handsome men. Not only that are robust and perfect physically, but good looking. Young teenagers. And then skillful in all the wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and so on. I mean, he's looking at the very top tier of intelligence, too. He wants high IQ. He wants those that are knowledgeable and can be taught. Competent to stand in the king's presence. So he wants the the very best here. The most gifted. The nobility the best looking, and so on. This is what he's looking for, so that they can stand with confidence and strength in his presence and serve him in his temple. And then one more thing is added, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. You don't want to talk about this just for a moment. First of all, the language of the Chaldeans was Akkadian. Akkadian, it depends on how you want to say it. Akkadian, Akkadian. 
this was the very complex writing system that was done in symbols. When you see the old things that come out of the empires in the Near East, from that time period, they used cuneiform. Dashes in every... This is not hieroglyphics. I'm not talking about Egyptian hieroglyphics that are pictures. This were, these were symbols that was the language. It was very complex, very difficult to learn. But the language that people spoke generally was Aramaic, which was a Semitic language similar to Hebrew. But I believe it's they're being taught Akkadian here. But now the literature, this is an interesting thing that I looked at a little more. What is the literature of the Chaldeans? It depends kind of on what is intended by Chaldeans. Chaldeans is the word that is regularly employed to speak of the people of Babylon. So if it's meant like that, it would refer to the general body of knowledge that was available then, that was studied and learned by the Babylonians. Kind of a general education in Babylonian lore, whatever it was that they taught. However, Chaldeans actually can also specifically refer to a priestly class of wise men. The astrologers who practiced divination and astrology, a way of gaining knowledge. And we would say today it was occultic in practice. It belonged to the area of the occultic arts. And there was literature specifically designed for that, like reading dreams, reading omens, and so on. And it could be that they are actually being trained in the practice of divination, that they wanted them to learn this. So it could go either way, depending on how we read the Chaldeans. The literature of the Chaldeans. But the bottom line is, what, he, what Nebuchadnezzar is wanting is to prepare these young men to be his advisors. To stand in his court, be there, available for advice and counsel, and so on. Now, the king put them on a special diet. Do you see that? He wanted them to eat the food that he ate, so it's off the king's menu. Actually, the Hebrew there reads the fine food of the king. That's the literal translation of what the Hebrew says, the fine food of the king. So you can just imagine what it was. A real, a whole other level of menu for, for them. And they were looking at their daily intake. So they were being regulated as to the kind of food they ate and how much they took in trying to control all of that. And then their education was to last how long? Three years. It's about how long it takes for somebody to really get good in a subject, when you think about it. How long do our bachelor's degrees last today? And I mean, it's about three to four years, depending on how good you are as a student. How long did Jesus train the disciples for? About three years. 
So they, they have that in place, how long it would take to prepare these men. To be ready for what? For royal service. To stand before the king. Now in verses 6 and 7, we have the introduction of Daniel and his three friends. Now I want to point out as we go through this, what their names mean, because it's significant to the story here. Daniel means God is my judge. He's a, a statesman in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and as Jesus said, he is the prophet. Daniel's career, as we noted last time, spanned four kings from 605 through 539. And if we take the 10th chapter, verse 1, into account, the third year of Cyrus, that takes us to 536, that Daniel was in Babylon, over 70 years. So it's an amazing thing. He spanned the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. God is my judge. Then he mentions his friends, Hananiah. Have you come across that name before in the Old Testament? Probably you have. It's, there's 14 Hananiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, we don't know anything about him. But his name means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael, well, I love the meaning of his name. It's just not an easy name to pronounce, and it sounds feminine today because it almost sounds like Michelle, but I'm trying to bring it out. Mishael means, check this out, who is what God is. This is what his name means. Who is what God is? How would you like to have a name that meant that? It's amazing. Azariah, this is the most common name in the Old Testament. There's 27 Azariahs mentioned in the Old Testament. Most common name. It means Yahweh has helped. So you see in the names of all the men, there's a reference to the God of Israel. Did you see that? He's in their name, as he is in many of the Jewish names. However, the chief of the eunuchs is going to rename these men. Now, why does he do that? This is very symbolic, what he did. Because what he is doing is he is making them aware that they are now to be loyal to... They're in, they have a new status now with Nebuchadnezzar. They're in his training school. A new status. They have a new king. Jehoiakim's not their king anymore. Nebuchadnezzar is. They have a new king, a new nation, Babylon, and they have really a new religion, a new worldview that's being crammed down their throat. And so this was to symbolize their submission to that and their loyalty as subjects to... King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, what is interesting is the first and the last name we can identify clearly, but the middle two, they can't come out with yet. They haven't discovered the meaning of it. But Belteshazzar, that was given to Daniel, his name means Bel's prince, or he whom Bel favors. Bel is another name for Marduk. Yeah, that's one of Marduk's names, is Bel. So he, he's now Bel's prince. So let's get rid of the true God out of their name. Let's divorce them from that. See, they're trying to, they're trying to mold them here. Hebrews, Romans 12.1, don't let the world pour, pour, pour you into its mold. This is exactly what they're trying to do to Daniel and his three friends. Get them to forget who their God is by changing their name. Now they're to be committed to another religion, another deity. Then Abednego, the two middle names I wasn't able to get really any light on, Shadrach and Meshach. But Abednego, this is a corruption of Abednebo. They changed it for some reason, perhaps because it's, it's a clear idolatrous name, Abednego, or Abednebo, Nebo, see the change in the pronunciation, Abednebo means the servant of Nebo. Now both Nebo and Bel are mentioned together in Isaiah 46 and verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. He's talking about the idols of Babylon, and especially mentions Bel and Nebo. Nebo was the son of Marduk. So these are two chief deities in the pantheon of gods in Babylon that are embedded in the names of Daniel and Azariah. Let's just think now what has happened to these men. And that, you know, I, I want to bring out the remarkable fact of how they were able to remain true to God in this situation. Now just think about it. So they've been deported from their homeland. They're no longer living the wonderful life they had in Judah with the temple, worshiping in an environment where everybody was doing the same thing and they had all the support and the encouragement to persevere in their belief in the God of Israel. Now they find themselves in exile in a foreign land, a strange land, and in an alien culture where a very alien world thought is being taught to them, worldview, and yet 
which is hostile to their faith, hostile to their God. Clearly, they're trying to expunge God from their lives by changing their name to begin with. And then by putting them through this rigorous education and indoctrinating them in all of the Babylonian teaching, these men, we're going to see, remain faithful to Yahweh. They didn't compromise. They're not nasty about it, as we'll see later in the chapter. Daniel is so gracious in how he, he's so wise, he's so gracious in how he will tell the chief of the eunuchs, I really don't want to eat this food, and this is contrary to our views. He doesn't say it like that, but that's essentially what it comes down to. Yet Daniel continues, we don't know how long the three friends were there. We lose track of them after the third chapter of the book. They're never mentioned again after chapter 3, after they're thrown into the fiery furnace. So we don't know what happened to Daniel's three companions. But we knew, know that Daniel's life continued. He became an old man in exile. No indication he ever went back to Judah when they were given permission by Cyrus, no indication that Daniel went home. He's still in Babylon or in the Persian kingdom in the third year of Cyrus. So that's, that's an amazing thing. But, you know, this is exactly where we are as Christians, <laughs> We're, we're in exile, in a sense, because our citizenship is not here. Ultimately, it's in heaven, is what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our body at His coming, and so on. Peter tells us that we're strangers here. We're sojourners and so in a similar sense, we're in, this, is a, this is a parallel you can make. We're kind of in the same situation because we're in an environment that's very anti-God right now, anti-Bible, anti-Jesus, anti-Christianity. And we're getting the world's viewpoint on things and their thought constantly pushed on us. Are we going to let it affect? Many people are leaving the church because of this. Especially among the young people. They're walking away from Jesus Christ. Those who profess faith in Him at one time have left. Well, we don't want to let the world pour, pour us into its mold, for sure. But, you know, Peter, as he goes on to tell us how we're to live, after saying that we're sojourners, we're pilgrims here... How are we to live? He, he has a number of exhortations for us. He says to abstain from your passions that war against the, that are warring against us. Passions of the flesh. That that's the first thing we need to deal with our personal sinful inclinations. He says keep your conduct honorable. That's another way of saying it in a very positive way. To watch how you live. But he goes on to say to be subject to the emperor, just like Daniel was and his three friends, to live as people who are free, but yet your servants of God. 
free yet servants. This is our status in this world. Paul emphasizes that when he's talking to those who were very much servants of others, he reminds them of their freedom. Those who are free men, he reminds them of the fact that they're servants. So we need to be reminded of both. It's not either or in the life of the Christian. We are both free, but we're also servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bond servants of His. Meaning we're concerned about doing the will of one person. He has full control over us. He dictates everything to us. We should have no will of our own, but bent on doing His will. And then Peter says to honor everyone. And finally, fear God. Fear God. This is all in 1 Peter chapter 2. What does it mean to fear God? Well, fearing God is the idea in the Bible that we have such a view of Him that the worst thing that could ever happen to us is to incur His frown or displeasure. When that becomes the the thing that really checks me in my life and keeps me from just going crazy in sinful practices... It's the fear of God. That I, I don't want to come under His displeasure. And on the other hand, the thing I want more than anything else is His smile. I want Him to look upon me and be smiling and be pleased with me. When that happens and when that is going on, nothing makes me happier. This is to fear God. It all comes out, doesn't it, in the beautiful priestly blessing over God's people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. That means may God be looking upon you with pleasure. May He be looking upon you with a smile because that's the greatest thing in life to know that God is smiling down upon us. The the most dreaded thing is to have Him frowning upon us. This is to fear God. It doesn't mean to live in the kind of fear and terror of somebody who sees something horrible that just makes them shake and quiver. Although we would shake and quiver in the presence of deity if we were to suddenly encounter him. We would fall flat on our face and we would be terrified. But God is my heavenly father. He's a father to us. We're his children. That means he loves us. We have access to him in a way that others do not. And this father, we don't, when your children come before you, you wouldn't be a very good parent if they stood before you and they were just shaking before they asked you something. Uh, What's wrong? Why am I making... No, same thing with a child of God. He comes before God. He comes with confidence. But, oh, there's a respect and a reverence there. That's very, very important to his realization as to who his father is. In reality, he is the awesome and dreadful God of the Bible, Yahweh, in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is tremendous application, I believe, in this. Because what do we need today? We need some people, kind of like Daniel, young people today who will stand against the culture, 
just a, <laughs> a very foreign culture, foreign worldview, take a stand for Jesus Christ, be uncompromising, and be his servants in that, uh, in that context. Not, wa- not walk away from the Lord. That's the, that's the worst thing that they can do is walk away. We need more. More young people, young men and women to serve him. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.